a graduate of Asbury College and Asbury Theological Seminary, Dennis Kinlaw received his Ph.D. from Brandeis University. He was a lifelong student of God's Word and human culture, always looking for evidence of God's activity in human life. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Turn with me in your New Testaments to the book of 2 Corinthians. And I'd like for us to look at one of the most strategic and one of the most important passages in the New Testament, both in terms of uh, the atonement and also in terms of ministry. Chapter 5, reading from verse 11 through the beginning of chapter 6. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. I don't know about you, but I suspect you're like me. I find myself again and again thinking how incredibly rich we are that we have the writings of the New Testament and of the Old Testament. Can you feature what life would be like if we didn't have these? And there's so many priceless portions in the Scripture. Lately, I've been trying to get a little better control of two books in the New Testament, First and Second Corinthians. And as I have, I've found they've been a genuine challenge, Second Corinthians particularly. But at the same time that uh, it's a challenge, there is no question that these two books, and particularly Second Corinthians, are priceless parts of the New Testament corpus. The reality is that in these, you probably get a better look at the first century church than you do anywhere else in the New Testament. And I don't know about you, but my feelings across the years have been, if I could have only lived in the first century, I would have seen what pristine, pure Christianity was like. But as I read First and Second Corinthians, I find that the first century church is remarkably like the one to which I belong. And uh, the ideal is just not there. You, at least you have to look for it in order to find it. Instead of uh, pristine purity, you find division and strife. You find gross immorality. You actually find incest inside the church. You find the le leaders and teachers who have what Paul would call a carnal, worldly knowledge of the gospel. And we have those who... Uh, their business is to attack Paul and try to trim him down to size. They don't like his stature, so they challenge his integrity. They challenge his apostleship, and they challenge his gospel and his ministry. Now, what is there left when you challenge those things about Paul? So uh, I found myself resonating with a statement from C.K. Burkett, 
who wrote the book on Paul in which he began by saying Paul was one, without question, one of the most hated men in the first century. Now, you know, here's a man that, from my point of view, is the New Testament equivalent of Moses. And how a Jew feels about Moses as the one who gave Judaism to the world, and we believe gave to us, the, the was the instrument through whom we got the old, old covenant. Paul is the one who really is the one through whom the new covenant has been given and clarified for us. So if you were to pick two men in human history who are the greatest, as far as I'm concerned, Apart from our Lord, these are the two, Moses and Paul. And yet, uh, what a battle he had and what a life he had to live. Now, in these two letters, one of the beautiful things is not only that you see what the church was like, but you have an opportunity to see a side of Paul that you, we do not always notice. It does not come through in the, in the book of Acts. And it is there in the other epistles, but it is in in a more poignant way, up front in uh, in First and Second Corinthians, and from my point of view, in Second Corinthians particularly, here you have a chance to see Paul the churchman. Now you get the opportunities in the New Testament to see him as the evangelist and the missionary, but here he is as the churchman who's dealing with the church, and he is the pastor who is dealing with a group of people whom he led to Christ. And in his initial visit to them, he had spent a year and a half with them. So he knows these people, and he knows them extremely well. So from my point of view, 2 Corinthians is a very valuable piece of material for us. But there is another aspect. It is obvious that Second uh, Corinthians was written with great passion. I think it just... I think he sat down and scrawled off as fast as he could go, expressing what was in his soul, and that's one of our problems in trying to make it make sense and put all the pieces together. Some way or other, a raw nerve had been touched in Paul, and Second uh, Corinthians is the explosion that erupts as a result of that raw nerve being touched. So as I said, it is not an easy letter. It is a difficult one. It is not always self-explanatory. In fact, uh, you would need to be a first century Corinthian to understand all of the implications that are in it and all that is being said there. Because those intimations that he gives where he does not state explicitly what he wants to say, he doesn't have to. The people to whom he's writing know exactly what he's talking about so he can do it by intimation and subtle reference rather than by explaining to you post uh in big letters, exactly what the circumstances are there. As I read, I was reminded of a letter which uh, I uh, found a reference to the other day from John Wesley when he was at Oxford and he wrote to his brother Samuel. And he said, to your objection, you are despised by, at Oxford I answer, one, a Christian will be despised anywhere. Number two, no one is a Christian till he is despised. Now, I'd love to know what evoked to that. It'd be fascinating to know what the context was. But you can count on it, John was having a bad day that day. But there was a reality behind it that caused him to have a bad day, and we get, a, we get an insight into Wesley from that that we might not have if we had the full explanation of what is there. So First Corinthians, to me, uh, Second Corinthians to me is a lot like that. But the result is that you and I have a window on the very soul of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. He tells us more about himself in this letter than anywhere else in the New Testament in, in any of his writings and certainly more than Luke tells us about him. And as you read it, there, uh, there are two issues that are primary. There may be other things that concern him. In the first letter, you will remember there's a whole succession of problems he deals with. But there are two latent issues in every line of Second Corinthians, and one of them is his apostleship, because it is being challenged. And, you know, that's the way he identified himself. His self-identification was in those terms. You know how he begins, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the way he understood himself. So what's taking place is his own self-understanding is being challenged. And uh, as I read it about his, sense of apostleship to me. It is remarkably like what you find in the Gospel of John with Jesus 
his sense of sentness from the Father. Because if you ask him who he is, he says, my Father sent me. He finds his identity through his relationship to his Father, and it is a sentness relationship. Now, you know enough to know that the word send is what the word apostello, from which we get apostle, means. So Paul has that same sense of sentness that gives him his self-identity, that Jesus, he has it as a human being, as a creature, as one who's been redeemed by the blood of Christ, but it's remarkably similar psychologically to what you find in the Gospel of John in that sense of sentness that you have in Jesus. But the second thing that is under attack in 2 Corinthians, the second issue is his ministry. The first is personal, and the second is the gospel that he has to preach, and what it means, and the gospel that has been given to him. The the result is that you get what for me is theology with poignancy. In a way that you do not find it, I do not find it anywhere else in the New Testament. It is a theology that is not drawn out of the text singly, nor is it drawn out of theological logic. It is drawn out of life itself. It is drawn out of Paul's life, Paul's circumstances, so that it is not a systematic statement. It is very much an existential statement. And in that sense, I found myself thinking about John Wesley. I'll never forget uh, one of the major named theologians in the United States commenting on John Wesley and saying, well, he was a second-rate theologian. He certainly never gave us a systematic theology like John Calvin did. No, he gave us 44 sermons, standard sermons, or 52, whichever way you want to count it. But he gave us his theology in sermon because he was not a, he was not, what kind of chair theologian will you call it? You know, you sit in the corner and think, His theology came out of the proclamation of the gospel, out of trying himself to live out what Christ died to do in his life and to share that with the world. So what you've got is a theology that expresses itself in proclamation. Well, in Paul, you don't get a systematic theology either, but you get a theology that expresses itself in letters, where one believer writes to a group of other believers and the the, the, uh, book of 2 Corinthians is loaded, from my point of view, with very significant uh, theology that we need to face and to understand. But now the issue was his ministry and his uh, apostleship. Now what about his ministry? What was it like? Let me remind you, uh, I don't know about you, but I lived a long time before I ever looked very closely at Second Corinthians because I didn't know what to do with it. It confused me. But uh, you may be familiar with these passages, but let me uh, just read for you for a few minutes what his ministry was like. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, you and I are pots, to show this all-passing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We always carry about in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our bodies. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us but life is in working you. Now, how recently in a pastor's conference have you had pastoral ministry described that way? Uh, or in the literature that we have. Now, let me read for you a second description that he gives to us of what his ministry is like. He says in, that was in chapter 4, now in chapter 6 he says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. You notice what he's talking about is his ministry. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, hunger, purity, understanding, patience, 
kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report. That ever happened to you? <laughs> Genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, oh, and opened our wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your heart also. Now, do you feel the poignance in that? When he's telling you all the negatives in his life, and he's writing to people that he has spent uh, many, many months with, and whom he loves very dearly, and whom he himself led to Christ, and he said, I've opened my soul to you, but you haven't opened yours to me. Now, I doubt if there are many pastors who've been in the pastorate very long who haven't don't find something in their experience to uh, relate to that. Maybe not in the, in the extent of the negatives, but certainly in that final note. Now, there's one other passage in 2 Corinthians, and it is in chapter 11, and it uh, gives us uh, information we do not find anywhere else about the Apostle Paul. Now, let me begin reading from the middle of verse 21 in chapter 11. What anyone else dares to boast about, I speak as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this, but I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty stripes, lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. Now here is, <laughs> he puts a P.S. on. And my feeling is, he's saying, well, let me give you a picture of my dignity and my stature. <laughs> he says, in Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But they found a hole in the wall in the middle of the night and nobody was looking and the guards couldn't see and they let me out of the city in a basket, lowered me down. <laughs> and so he flees. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through King Aretas' hand. Now, uh, what a picture of a of a preacher, <laughs> of a preacher of the gospel, <laughs> a man who's heard the call of Christ and he is serving Christ and those three passages give us the description. Rough? Yeah. <laughs> Paul says, shall I quit? No. Shall I slow down? No. Shall I be more careful? Paul says, don't count on me. <laughs> Look with me in chapter 12 at something that sort of sums up the heart of this man in a way that to me now is one of the great passages in, in the New Testament. Look at chapter 12. And uh, he just told about, uh, he has some, there are those in the church at Corinth who have talked about their great religious experiences. 
And uh, they said, now, we've had these wonderful experiences. Who's Paul? He never told you about any experiences like that. Very interesting how Paul doesn't tell you about the deep experiences in his life. He feels, I think he feels that if he tells the deep experiences, people will get their eyes on the sensory instead of on the eternal. And so he doesn't tell them about those. But he said, if they want to boast about it, let me tell you about it. I know a man, you notice he doesn't even name him, name his own name, but he's talking about himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. And then he speaks about the visions and the revelations that he had there. But he says, I'm not going to boast about that. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. So he had, you'll notice that that's in the plural. There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. And he said, I'm just going to let you have that perpetual thorn in your flesh to remind you of your need to be dependent upon me. I don't know about you, but I think Paul was a guy who had a remarkable amount of self, uh, self, self-independence. He, uh, he had, the, he was a powerful human being, a powerful personality. God says, I just want to help you keep in line, so I'll give you a, I'll give you an indication of my love. I will give you something to make you perpetually dependent upon me. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now, uh, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then am I strong. Uh, But now turn with me to chapter 10 and let me get to the line with all of that that I wanted to get to. We uh, begin with verse 14 of chapter 10. We are not going too far in our boasting as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel. Remember Corinth was the westernmost point that he had been able to go starting from Jerusalem, carrying the gospel west. And Corinth represented the next step would have been to jump over to Rome. And so he says, we got to you. Neither we do, do we go beyond our limits, verse 15, by boasting of work done by others. Paul was not interested in living off of the work of others. Paul wanted to be a pioneer and go in and go where others had not. So he didn't build on other men's foundations. Our hope is that, as your faith continues to grow, our area of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in another man's territory. But let him who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but whom the, one, whom, the one whom the Lord commends. But now that line, Notice how easily it slipped in and has become a phrase for us. He says, I want to come to you, and then I want visiting you to be a means of moving me on my way so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. So when you use the expression, the regions beyond, what are you using? An expression that summed up, in a sense, the ministry of Paul. If there's a territory out there where the gospel has not gone, he's got his eyes on it, and the question is, how do we get there? Now, uh, do you quit when the trouble comes? No. When you get lowered down through the basket in a certain amount of ignominy uh, and flee the city, where do you head for? Security? No, you head for the next frontier. When you've been beaten with rods mercilessly and you're coming to and you arrive, where do you head for? Head for the next frontier. No matter what the problem, no matter what the opposition, when when there is a break, what do you do? You head for the next frontier. Now, I've come to think of Paul as a man who couldn't be stopped. And you know, I wonder if that's not what ought to be characteristic, more characteristic of you and me, that nothing stops us. Our commitment is so total. There is a world for whom Christ died. Therefore, everything ought to be on the line. And if there are those who do not know, we have a responsibility. And it matters not what the cost. And I think that's what Paul was talking about when he said, 
I have the sentence of death in me because I'm laying down my life for him. Now, what was it that kept him going under all of those adverse circumstances? That's one of the reasons that this passage in chapter 5 is significant to me. Because you will notice he tells you very quickly, right in the opening line of verse 14. Let's look at that. Get it in front of you so you can see the text. Let's begin with verse 11 and then come down to the passage. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. And I don't believe that that's quailing fear. It is the kind of thing that causes him to creep. It's the kind of thing that causes him to feel obligated to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it is that respect. He stands before God like Isaiah did when Isaiah heard him say, whom shall I send and who will go for us? This kind of thing. And so that awesome respect and awesome fear in the beautiful, holy sense of God. Because what does he say? It's because of that we try to persuade men. Now, if you're lashed with a whip, you're not going to persuade anybody. But if you come out of holy respect for the eternal God, there will be a response in the audience that's there somewhere. There will be a heart that responds. Now he says, what, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Now there's a beautiful example of how Paul deals with his opponent. In your daily reading, reading your three to five chapters, you can slide right over that and not know that he's given you a window on the hostility that he faces in Corinth. You notice what he says? He says, we are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Because there are those who in, in Corinth who are concerned about appearances rather than reality. If we are out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ, some translations say constrain us, this one says compels us, and it is a strong word. Let me hold to the word compel for the moment. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What is it that compels him when he's just been stoned and they thought he was dead and he shakes himself and arises and goes on to the next town to preach? What is it that moves him? He said it's the love of Christ. Now, I'm not a grammarian. wish I were. But uh, the grammarians talk about the difference between a subjective genitive and an objective genitive. So when it says the love of Christ, is it his love for Christ, or is it the love of Christ that's entered into him and transformed him? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure you can separate those two things. Because I'll tell you, if you fall in love with him, his love will enter you, and it'll transform you. And if you let his love enter into you, you'll find yourself responding in an unbelievable burst of affection and love for him. So Paul says, the love of Christ, and I'd like to say both ways, Objective and subjective. The love of Christ is what it is that is compelling him. Now, what was it that produced this love in his heart? There's some people who have it. There's some people that don't. Where did Paul get it? Was it just dropped down out of heaven on him, forced on him? I think what you've got is in this passage an indication that Paul has been to the foot of the cross and he has seen the crucified one. And when he... There before the cross and before the crucified one, something happened inside him and Christ captured his heart. And from that point on, Paul thinks of himself as a slave. He does not belong to himself. He belongs to the one who died for him and has been raised from the dead. You know, there's a lot of data to back up the notion that I just propounded that that was what it was, a transformed. 
I remember the when I was first beginning to deal with the passage in John 20, the Sunday evening passage after the resurrection, and uh, I was thinking about uh, how Peter and James and John were there with the women and the children and Cleopas and his friend and others, and uh, that band of people who had loved Christ. And not one of them really had acquitted himself very well in the last 72 hours. And they're talking about him, and suddenly there he is. And I thought, uh, if I were Peter, what would I do? I'd look for a door to slide out, wouldn't you? Or else I'd get to his feet as fast as I could and fall on my face before him and plead for forgiveness. But when he comes... Not one of them's done well, particularly as disciples. Does he come to rebuke? No, no, no. There's not an ounce of rebuke in this passage. He's suddenly there, and what does he do? He says, peace be to you. Then he shows them his hands and his side. And suddenly I thought, you know, a remarkable thing began at that moment, a love affair between the body of Christ and the wounds of Jesus. Because uh, in the message that we heard, I don't think I'll ever forget that grape that was cut. <laughs> and then those Wesley hymns that were cited, you found your heart leaping at it. Because it is the supreme expression of the love of God to you and to me and to a lost world. Now he'd seen that. He'd seen the crushed grape and it captured him. Now, what were the effects of this? I want to say that he was saved. <laughs> That's what the cross is all about, isn't it? The cross is in order that we can be saved because who is it that dies there? It's the Savior. And he alone is. A lot of other people have been crucified in human history. It didn't do you and me any good. But when this one was crucified, our lives, the potential was there for the transformation of our Eternal so uh, eternal existences. Now, what was it? He's the Savior. This is Yeshua, Jesus, the Savior. Now, what is that salvation that he that he wrought for us? Now, I've come to love this passage from this point of view. I think it is the one message on salvation that American evangelicalism needs most. Because I don't know about you, but I'm convinced that we have played fast and loose in America with the New Testament concept of salvation. Now, I think our motive may have been legitimate, at least sentimentally so, because, you see, what we've wanted to do is set the standard so we can make it as appealing as possible. And so what we do is we get it down as low as we can, and the guys still get in. And then in American evangelicalism, once he gets in, we tell him, now turn around and look at the door and spend the rest of your life rejoicing that you're inside and you can't get out. Uh, one of the things that got to me was this past summer, early in the summer, <clears throat> I had some assignments coming up and I figured I needed to do it, so I reread the biography of uh, L.C. Rudolph's biography of Francis Asbury. If you haven't read that in the last five years, you ought to indulge yourself. And it's a priceless volume, written by a Presbyterian, good Calvinist. He's not uh, a Wesleyan, but uh, with great respect and with very discriminating. I noticed that there was a wisdom in Asbury that I had not always noticed. I noticed that his section on the chapter in the book by Rudolph on revival comes before evangelism. And there's a theology in that. Because if you're going to win people to Christ, you need a wholesome body to attach them to. And the thing about it is, if you get God's people to living together the way they ought to live together, you know, I notice if you get two people that are different to live together in love, you have to take artificial means to keep them from reproducing. And if you can get the church what it ought to be, it's going to be reproductive. So it's appropriate that the passage the chapter on evangelism should come after the chapter on revival. And it said that everywhere Asbury went, his major thrust was 
How do we get revival? He turned district conferences into revival meetings, into camp meetings. That's the reason he loved the camp meetings. He turned annual conferences into revival meetings, knowing that if the church was on fire, the world would feel the impact of that thing. But then it said he had a great fear of backsliding in the church. He was so afraid his people would backslide, but he never preached on it. And if he was afraid of it, why didn't he preach on it? The reason he didn't preach on it was because he preached on perfect love. He preached on the fullness of the gospel in such a way that the guy who was hanging around the doorway got his eyes pointed toward the deeper things and there was a hunger that grew in him and the people who called Methodists were hungering for all of the fullness of God in their soul. Best cure for backsliding you can find. That's a little different in the 18th century from what we've done in the, in the 20th century in the United States. Now, what is this salvation that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5? Is it uh, salvation from hell? Not a reference to it. Not a reference here to being lost in the sense of eternal destiny. Is it salvation from uh, guilt? You know, the buy a bad psychological byproduct of not being right with God? There's not an ounce of psychology in it in that sense. Is it uh, a preaching of the gospel to promote the hope that you can get some of the byproducts of grace? Like get your marriage straightened out? Or save your children? Or get blessing on your business? Or get healed? Not a line of that. What is it that we're saved from? Paul is incredibly explicit. He said we're saved from us. And that's what the problem is. <laughs> sure, there's a hell, but the way you get there is by living your way. And if we can get you straightened out, you don't have to worry about that. You live wrong and there'll be guilt, it'll eat you up. But if you don't live for yourself, but if you live for Christ, you'll be free and you'll be whole and healthy. And so he keeps going and says, what is it? For the love of Christ compels me. For we thus judge that one died for all, and if all died, then all are dead. And we who live should what? No longer live for ourselves, but live for him who died for us and who rose again. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, that has become incredibly powerful to me. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be saved from me. Some of you have heard me tell a story about a fellow down in North Carolina. There was a camp meeting in the city of High Point and uh, Greensboro area. And he had been influenced by that campground, camp meeting, and so he stopped camp meeting was not in session. He just thought he'd have his spirit refreshed from that identification again with the holy place. And when he got on the campground to his shock, he found it was inhabited, jammed full of a motorcycle gangs with their fringes and their leather. And he was horrified. But he went in the cafeteria and they'd put a big sign up there. It had four lines. Father, I have a problem. It's me, second line. Third line, child, I have an answer. Fourth line, it's me. <laughs> now, I've decided that's incredibly good theology because the problem is when I am not rightly related to God and it is gone when he is rightly related to me and I am rightly related to him. So this is what Paul is getting at. Now, let me raise a question with you. Have you ever wondered how much Paul knew about Jesus? You know, he never quotes him very often. He never makes any reference to the prodigal son or John 14. Or never, you know, quotes the Lord's Prayer. How much did he know about Jesus? We don't know. But I suspect he knew more than you can prove confident of that. You remember those 15 days he spent in Jerusalem with Peter? 
I don't think you're going to tell me <laughs> that they didn't drink a whale of a lot of coffee and sleep very little. And uh, end of the long night hours, Paul would say, tell me more. <laughs> tell me more. Tell me more. As I read this passage, I wonder if Peter said, well, let me tell you about the day he chose us. You know, we'd been associating with him. One day, he took us aside and he tapped 12 of us on the shoulder. And I was one. And then he said, now boys, let me tell you what I want you to do. And he sent us out on our first missionary journey. He said, I want you to go out and heal the sick. I want you to go out and do the work, the good work. And I want you to proclaim the gospel. Now, he said, I want to tell you, it's not going to be easy. <laughs> You'll hit a lot of opposition. They'll hail you before the synagogues and before the court. And he says, uh, it may get bitter. But if you're ashamed of me, I will have to be ashamed of you when I talk to my father. Now, he said, let me tell you, if you love father or mother, brother or sister, son or daughter more than me, you can't go this way because I've got to be first. Now, you know, I read that for many years. Never thought about the fact the only human relationship that he speaks about in that passage is the family. Now, let me tell you why I think he did that. You see, if you take the supreme loyalty and deal with it. You don't have to deal with the secondary loyalty. And in a Jewish context, the supreme loyalty is the family. And he said, I've got a claim on you greater than that. And if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to put me ahead of father, mother, brother, sister, husband, wife, child. I've got to be first. And if I am first, then when you go, what they do with you, they're doing with me because I go with you and in you. And if they receive you, they get me. And if they miss you, if they reject you, they miss me because you are me in there in my place. Now he said, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and the gospel, you'll save it. You suppose that's some of what Paul had in mind and was thinking about when he wrote this passage? Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. And if you lose it from me, you'll find it. So he says, what did he die to do? Bring you to the place where you don't live for you. You live for him and you live totally for him. Now, I wonder if Peter also said, Paul, let me tell you about another experience. It was that last week. None of us knew what was coming, but we could sense something in the air. And one day, Philip came and he said, there's some Greeks out here. Philip and Andrew said, there's some Greeks out here, some Gentiles, and they want to see the master. And the master turned and said, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, this is the one for which I came. Except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it will bring forth much good. The one who saves his life will lose it. The one who loses it for my sake will save it. Peter said, you know, we didn't understand. But that first time he was talking about our going to all of the people of Israel. But when the Greeks came, the question was how to get the gospel to the Gentile world and to the last non-Jew. And the price is the same. you got to get to the place where you're saved from you. And he possesses you totally. He died to save you from the contamination in your life of what you want when it conflicts with what he wants. That's the death to what I want, and that's the life to what he wants. So he says, the love of Christ constrains, compels me. 
because we know that one died for all and all were dead. But now we who live, we don't live for ourselves, but we live for him who died for us and who, who was raised from the dead. What difference does it make when that transformation takes place within me? It means, first of all, that you think different. You've got a whole different mindset. You've got a whole different standard of value. What motivates you is totally different. It is a profound and a radical change. Here is a place where if you know the original text, you're a little better off than you are with our translation. Because look what he says in this translation. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, and verse 16 is the one I want to talk about, we regard, and here I'm giving you the NIV, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Now let me ask you, what does it mean to regard somebody from a worldly point of view? It's interesting, the Greek is very suggestive. He says, we now no longer look at anyone, katasarka. We now no longer look at anyone according to the flesh. There was a time when we looked at Jesus according to the flesh, but we don't look at him that way anymore. Now, do you know what the opposite of the sarks is in the New Testament? It is the pneuma. It is the spirit. <laughs> he says, we don't look at anyone anymore from the standpoint of the flesh. We look at every person now from the standpoint of his potential in the Holy Spirit. And what is that potential? Let me tell you what he says is the central thing. He says, do you know what the Holy Spirit will do? He's the one that brought Jesus out of the grave. And he can bring you out of your selfishness. <laughs> and the supreme evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence is that he has delivered a person from self-interest. The supreme evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that a person has been delivered from self-interest. Why did Christ die? so that I'm set free from the contamination of self-interest. Do you understand what I mean when I say contamination? <laughs> Have you ever seen good things just sort of defiled a bit? Let me see if I can get it down. Have you ever reported on anything where God was involved and you happened to be a party to it? You were in it, and as you got to telling it, you thought, you know, this doesn't make me look too bad at all. So you sort of relished the chance to share this wonderful thing that God had done, and while you did it, you did it. Not obnoxiously, you know. You didn't labor it. And then you walked away, and you felt unclean. You know what I'm talking about? Paul says we don't look at anybody according to the flesh anymore. We look at them according to what the Holy Spirit can do because Christ shed his blood for us. And what did he do? He can save us from ourselves. So when you've been beaten with rods and you've been stoned, they think you're dead and you get ready to you shake yourself and you stand up. The question is not do I quit? There's a Holy Spirit in your heart that says, there's another horizon out there. <laughs> there's somebody else out there that's without Christ. And you find yourself rising to it. Now that's Paul. You know, uh, I appreciated yesterday the references to the, the, the pastoral ministry. I don't think there's any question but that the greatest vocation in the world is the pastoral ministry. I love the story Ellsworth told about standing at the door, shaking hands with his people, and 
you've been there, I've been there, most of us in this crowd, and if not, you've been one, you've either shaken hands or being shaken, one or the other, everybody here has been that, all of us have been through that. And when he said, I remembered, you know, standing, shaking hands, and people would unload, and you'd say, I'll pray for you. I loved uh, Ellsworth Candor. <laughs> and honest is that he said, meet him next week and realize I hadn't prayed for him. So I decided I wouldn't say it unless I could write it down. But when I wrote it down, I found that some of the load that was on that heart came onto my heart. And so what you do is you find yourself living for somebody beyond yourself. But do you know where the greatest fulfillment in human experience is? Is when you've been set free from self enough that you can live for somebody beyond yourself. And so, when you've been stoned and everything normal, rational says, man, you ought to quit this business or look for a safer place, a friendlier atmosphere. You don't think about you. You think about somebody who's never heard. Brother, a guy like me has got to be radically transformed for that to happen. You know, you can look at me cross-eyed, and I will. What is it that gets you where you can arrive and move on? You notice he says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. <laughs> And the problems that in the old creation have been corrected at this point. Where we are free to live for someone beyond ourselves. We're free to live the way God lives. Now let me tantalize you because I've got to quit. But uh, I'd never thought of this before. But do you remember this passage? It's interesting how Paul's letters interrelate, isn't it? Do you remember this line? May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. What did Christ die on the cross for? Make a new creation out of me. In other words, to turn me inside out. And the incredible thing is, when I take what I don't want because of him, I find I like it. And if I choose what I want, if it isn't in him, I find I don't want it after I've got it. Let's pray. Father, it's a privilege to be together, brothers, sisters, together in common cause. You promised that uh, you would be with us if we met in your name. Thank you that the one that is here is the one who has the wound in his side and in his hands and on his brow. We pray that the love of Christ, your love, Lord Jesus, will compel us and will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.